Home. I'm Dr. Tanya Roberson, Director of Community Engagement, Program Development, and Academic Support at Governor State University and the College of Health and Human Services, and your host for Governor State University's Southland Health and Wellness Hour. The Southland Health and Wellness Hour is not the traditional health and wellness podcast, nor is it intended to provide medical advice. This is a community-engaged podcast for residents of South Chicago and Chicago Southland, where individuals and community stories serve as a foundation for our discussions. Our guests address unanswered questions about health inequities and concerns. By talking together, we discover possible solutions to these issues. This podcast brings together community members, leaders, and organizations alongside topic experts to explore social trends, a variety of health and wellness topics, and to provide community resources to improve the lives of our listeners. The guest statements are their own and do not reflect the policies or opinions of Governor State University. Thank you for joining us. We have a great topic today. COVID-19, who does it impact the most and why? a discussion about racism and discrimination. Let's talk about it. Working as a community psychologist and studying the impact of disease and its inconsistencies, I continue to see a pattern in racial and health inequities. These longstanding systemic health and social inequities are substantial. The overlay and spread of coronavirus has magnified the inequities in our communities. Many people from racial and ethnic minority groups are at risk of getting sick and dying from COVID-19. The term racial and ethnic minority groups include people of color with a wide variety of backgrounds and experiences. According to the Centers for Disease Control, social determinants of health such as poverty and healthcare access affecting these groups are interrelated and influence a wide range of health and quality of life outcomes and risk. These determinants have not been considered and historically have prevented people from taking a holistic approach to their health. A holistic approach includes taking care of your mental, physical, economic, environmental, and emotional health. Black and Latinx communities, including those living with disabilities, are now the hub for the spread of the virus because of the lack of appropriate policies, community resources, existing food deserts, a lack of access to health care, and underlying chronic health and social conditions. These are definitely some uncertain times, although we will make it through. To achieve health equity, barriers must be removed so everyone has a fair opportunity to be healthy in their communities. Today, we have two guests who will share their perspectives on discrimination and racism, which are the driving forces of the social determinants that impact health outcomes. We will discuss how discrimination shapes social and economic factors that put many people from racial and ethnic minority groups at risk for COVID-19. Our first guest will discuss how your zip code where you live directly affects your health in a number of ways, ranging from your exposure to air pollution and toxins, 
to the accessibility of healthy foods, green space, and medical care, and how it can increase your risk of COVID-19. She is an environmental advocate and the executive director of People for Community Recovery, or PCR. This nonprofit environmental organization was founded by the late Hazel Johnson, mother of the environmental justice movement. PCR is located in the Art Gale Gardens, a Chicago housing authority development located in a community on the far south side of Chicago, which came to be known as the Toxic Donut. Welcome, Ms. Cheryl Johnson. Our second guest grew up on the south side of Chicago, where she witnessed friends and families struggle without the basic necessities to live and other social ills. She used this experience to achieve her dream of serving others in need. She is the founder of the Open Hands Project, which is designed to assist entrepreneurs and ministries bridge their purpose with local and global humanitarian efforts to address spiritual needs, medical needs, water shortage, education, and homelessness. She has used her compassion to help businesses with their charitable and philanthropic objectives. She will speak about how people with disabilities can face unique stressors and challenges that could worsen mental health during the COVID-19 crisis. Welcome, Dr. Lolita Cleveland. Before we start, listeners, we want to invite you to contact us comment about this podcast, and ask questions about racism, discrimination, and COVID-19. Go to our site and send us an email. The link is available in the podcast description. Also, if you need the most up-to-date and reliable source for COVID-19 information, go to the Center for Disease Control website at cdc.org. question is directed to you, Ms. Johnson. Right now in the United States, and especially during the pandemic, your zip code where you live is more predictive of your health outcome than your genetic code. Your organization, People for Community Recovery, PCR, shows just how much that is true. Can you explain and tell us what is the toxic donut and where did that name come from? The toxic donor was coined by my mother, the late Hazel Johnson, known as the mother of environmental justice. Um, she coined it because she discovered from her own personal research, research that uh, uh, it's like a donut and we're inside the center of the donut and outside the perimeter of this donut is all these toxic facilities. So uh, she felt like at that particular time that it was, it was, we was like it within the circle of a donut. But it's interesting to, to know that because of that, we have from our own personal research, she learned that we have 50 documented landfills in our area. And we have over 350 hazardous facilities operation around in the Lake Cayman area. So when you think about it and the fact that we have 
multimedia exposure in our air, water, and land because of the historical prior land use in this area dates all the way back to 1865. And that was during the George M. Poorman, uh, as I would say, saga, because he operated a sewage farm in this area, not only some of the local steel mill, but he had, and he was also into real estate. And, and at one point he almost tried to create his own money to circulate, but the federal government came in and shut him down. So there's a true history about that. But as it relate back to my community, the toxic donut, we, we are inside the donut and outside the perimeter of it is these multimedia uh, hazardous facilities and operations. Okay, and your community covers what area? Our area covered from 130th to 134th Street, where uh, we west of the Bishop Ford um, and we east of Michigan Avenue. I mean, well, that's the whole Riverdale community area um, in my area that comprise other neighborhoods that, that are next door to us. So but when you think about Algale, Algale go from, a, from Ellis, to St. Lawrence from 130th to 134th Street. But uh, I'd be remiss not to mention um, the other adjacent neighborhoods because they just as impacted and they are also included in that donut. Uh, and uh, uh, many of the people who once lived in Algale transitioned to these different neighborhoods. So I can imagine with all of those landfills and steel mills and all of that air pollution, a lot of members of your community, that's not really good for their health. And especially now with the pandemic on a rise, how has the work that your organization does, especially now during COVID-19, how has that added to the stressors already impacted by the pollution and the lack of food, PPE, and other resources in your community? Well, for one, let me, uh, uh, let me clarify something with you that the environmental problem, the urban environment pollution that we have in Algale, it doesn't just stays in, in this geographical area, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and, and when I tell a lot of young people that all the pollutions that come out the smokestack, mm -hmm. all the pollution that is being discharged in the water and, uh, and for one thing, we clearly have understand that pollution don't go to heaven. Whatever goes up must come down, you know, and, and where do that deposit at in our communities? How do we track those things in our houses? You know, and not even talking about having uh, living in unhealthy housing, you know, and, and, and that's one of the precursors that many industry look at is looking at the community from a socioeconomic and health status. And then and, and, and the more you lack those opportunities, the more they would be cited in your community. So that's been happening historically, and particularly for black communities. But we also see the same pattern that has happened in many of our brown community also. So um, when you look at environmental justice and the impact that it has as relates to COVID, you know, because all the, the deserts that we currently experiencing in our communities, such as food, such right. as, such as uh, quality health care, education, 
even jobs, even though we're a residential uh, neighborhood, but across the street, my neighbor, our industry. And what is the percentage of us working in these industries? Because they look at us as if more as a double jeopardy in a lack of a better way to explain it. Because you only be in the industry eight hours a day. So you in the community 24 hours a day. And everybody, yes. every industry wants, at the end of the day, want to make a profit at the end. So they don't want to spend a lot of money in healthcare if you know that the chemicals that you putting out from your industry is and, and it affects people respiratory problems, create respiratory problems. But all this is anecdotally because it has not scientifically been examined to prove because of the complexity of as that as we are told, because of the complexity of the environmental problems and in this community is hard to single source what caused what because that allow industry to uh, point fingers at each other. You know what I mean? So where will we accomplish with that? Uh, but I just think that from a government and a policy program, a policy point rather, that we've been neglected by all level of the government. When it comes to our title rights as civil rights under the law, under Title VI, I have to, I should have equal environmental protection as any neighborhood in the city of Chicago. Yeah. Despite that I don't live in Lincoln Park. I live on the far side side of Chicago. And it's a double standard when because I live in public housing. And uh and our organization uh work is around environmental racism that affect the things that I'm talking about. Our health, our housing, our, uh, education, our training, and our um, and economic opportunity. But on the other hand, we have to make sure that laws that's on the book need to be practiced the way that it's supposed to be, far as enforcing and and regulating the industry in our area, because we can't continue to allow them to pollute and go beyond what their permits allow them to operate. Right. Secondly, right. we need to, um, and, and what quality of health is this industry are impacting in my community? And what is our government is doing to make sure and to protect our rights when it comes to these interesting, uh, these industry regular, you know, working in our in our community. And the third thing I will always say is that I have a right to know what's going on. I should be able to be and be informed. That's my equal environmental protection under the law that should be given to every citizen in this country. Yes. So those are some of the things, and we also look at solutions, you know, because. We're learning through, you know, I, I'm so amazed. I've been involved with environmental justice issues for over 35 years. And to see the popularity that is receiving today is is well, is way overdue. It's right. way overdue, but we're having these conversations. And the most important thing, we are connecting it because of the intersectionality of it. You know, yeah. I try to explain to people that we tend to put environmental justice issues at the bottom of the totem pole, when in actually it is the umbrella of our everyday life. And the spokes that creates this umbrella is the housing, is the lack of affordable housing, 
It's the lack of education. It's the lack of having quality food in your community. So if any one of these folks are broken, guess what? Our environment is broken. Thank you so much for all the great points. Uh, my next question is directed to our second guest, Dr. Cleveland. Dr. Cleveland, tell us about the work that you are doing and how COVID-19 has changed your approach to delivering support to people in your community, especially those with disabilities. So I currently provide um, community resources. I am also within the Akio Riverdale community as the first guest, Cheryl Johnson. I'm honored to even be on with her today. Um, COVID-19 has definitely changed some things. Uh, I'm in the education sector, so I am with the babies. That's what I call them, my babies. And I am servicing currently elementary school children that are in true neighborhood schools. So the, the schools that I service are true neighborhood. They don't serve any other children outside of the area of Aguil and Riverdale. And unfortunately for some, um, even though they have had opportunities for remote learning, it has been very difficult. If you are in a household where um, mom has to work to make ends meet mm -hmm. and still have to be able to provide for her children, whether she's in public housing or no public housing, she needs support of her babies. Um, mm -hmm. And not to have those type of access um, has been difficult for some. We have partnered to be able to provide food to the kids in the community. However, um, a sandwich and some cookies is not a substance meal. The, the cookies is helping obesity. So they need some healthy things and some healthy alternatives. And we had an opportunity a few months ago um, to provide a community feed to the community where we were able to provide 43,000 pounds of food um, and produce um, to the community. That's just a bite out of it. It has to be consistent. And as Ms. Johnson said before, it's a food desert. So if our babies can't be nourished, how do you expect them to sit in front of a computer and be able to learn virtually and now school is scheduled to open and they're gonna be on the computer for six hours? Yes, there will be time for lunch breaks and things of that nature. However, how are they gonna get the uh, food that they need to keep them energized to do the work, um, to keep their minds steady? And the, the hard part to some of it is my diverse learners. Those children who may not learn like everyone else. Um, COVID has definitely caused that to be an issue. So it has been my goal to provide those resources to diverse learning parents with some creative ways to keep them engaged, keep autism children focused, keep kids who are not, who can't sit, you know, they have a lot of energy. So they may have to learn ABCs by jumping rope in front of the house. We're gonna get as creative as possible. Um, but I'm there for them to be able to um, have that support. And it's difficult because the people that are in school who provide the support to some children who may not have support at home, we're limited to access to the school due to COVID. Um, and I'm probably in trouble for saying this on air, but I'm gonna say it. I've been coming to the community. <laughs> My kids seen me last week. So um, they, they need that. They need that outlet. They need someone um, who would encourage them because not all homes are 
um, a safe home. Um, they're exposed with um, trauma and other things that are affecting them. So COVID-19 was just another layer of other issues and concerns that was already occurring prior to COVID-19 as, as Ms. Johnson um, provided. Thank you. And I know that um, last weekend you had a big event going on where you were passing out book bags and PPE. Yes. So we did a back to school event to provide school supplies because people don't realize kids are still going to need school supplies to be able to do the work that the teacher is providing. Notebook, paper, pencil, erasers. So we were able to, we partnered with some local communities, um, Governor State, we partnered with by the hands. Uh, we partnered with, and we were able to serve about 215 um, kids with the supplies and the kits that um, they were needed. Um, PPE was provided with masks and gloves to be able to get them what they need. There were blood pressure checks for the community. And of course, the local um, health facility that's in the area is always offers, offering the free COVID testing um, for the community to be able um, to get tested. So it's actually there. Um, for them. And then there's food given um, every Tuesday through that partnership um, to be able to help with some healthy food options. Okay. All right. Thank you both for doing great work in your areas. This next question is going to be for both guest one and guest two. What does structural racism and discrimination mean to you in the work that you do? And we'll start with you, Ms. Johnson. Basically, that's the work that I do every day is trying to break down the structural uh, 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 racism that's in this in this country, but it particularly in my own backyard. And when you look at it, because it's been so institutionalized, you know, that's where the policy change that need to be changed need to be changed that, you know, because it's in the books to how to treat people. But the worst kind of thing is that subliminal kind that people don't see and the, the bias that is, is, that's really, that manifested out of that, you know. And I guess as people, we all, we all have our own racial bias about the situation, but look, at it, look how it has accumulated in, in this country based on a pandemic that we have in this country, you know, is 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 terrible. But we have to challenge those structural racism that in in the work that we do, you know, and 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 maybe we have to make we may have to compromise ourselves in order to get those things done. Because at the end of the day, if it's not work, and what good is a job to me if I'm not drinking clean water? In my own neighborhood, or in the, or in my workplace, or the air quality, I'm not, I'm not breathing good because I, I know that the air quality is running and uh, is bad, and I know our government is not doing what it should do to protect us. So uh, if we don't make these screams and hollers and and come up with solutions within our own self and and within our own collective power and start demanding these things, because we don't. We don't as individuals. Once we go to that voting poll on November 3rd, don't let that be the end of your, your action, your activity in the political arena. You know, it's about educating our community about the political process 
because the process is what's damaging us. And we got to make those connections to the work that we do and, 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 the, and the negative impact of what some of these policies do for our community. And just and I failed to mention that I, I have a team of group. We go out outreach because we distribute PPE. We give out gloves, masks, and thermometers. We don't give out so much as the hand sanitizer because we know I'd rather give you a bar of soap because you can wash your hand and that's the best effective measurement. And, the, and it's not even cost effective for us to be continue to purchase the hand sanitizer because it seemed like everything quadru- uh, had triple now in cost. You know, mm-hmm. one of them little dollar bottles used to cost a dollar. Now it's five dollars. <laughs> it's five dollars. So it's yeah, like, yeah. no, you know, that's that's a whole lot to be able to try to give it out to the public. And we also do water distribution. You know, we learning that water qualities in Golden Gates and and adjacent neighborhood. People don't trust their water because of the discoloration in it. So we try to provide um, bottled water to them. But at the end of the day, that's only one. We're trying to assist them one problem with water quality. But the biggest thing about it is that we're bathing in it. And that's a route of entry from a health perspective. So what does that do? You know, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole lot, but, and, but I see the commonality of what I do under the reams of environmental justice. Thank you. Okay. Can you share your thoughts, Dr. Cleveland? You know, when I, it, when I think of structural um, racism and discrimination, I think of it in layers, mm-hmm. like skin has layers mm-hmm. and it piles on and it piles on. And then we're peeling back the skin and layers in the in the work that we're doing in the um, community. And I think about the children and the families that we serve and the fight that I have to have for the kids to be able to be afforded the opportunity to have open doors as other communities. Um, it's nothing to get a bus to get kids to a zoo or a museum or an activity and they society or structured people um, fight me to be able to have opportunity for the kids to be exposed um, to culture things, culture events, culture opportunities. Um, and, And my biggest thing is to always take the action to be their voice. I'm their voice. They trust, they've trusted me the last few years that I've been there to be able to have opportunity to be um, exposed to those things. And I was busing kids from the community to be able to go to um, STEM and science opportunities that's not afforded to our kids. Our kids aren't, um, they don't have the opportunity to be in robotics programs. Um, so providing them with the opportunity and not allowing what structurally said, as um, Ms. Johnson said, being able to take your action and understanding what the process is. So I always encourage people that once you learn what the structure is, find a way to be the voice to break down those barriers to get what you need for the people and the community that you serve. And not only um, to just serve them, but to peel back at the layers. So it may start one place, but you may do something in another place. 
And for me, that's education and exposure um, for our kids in the community um, that we service and not just the kids, but their parents and the grandparents. There are some grandparents that are raising grandkids. And, you know, when we did the food event, it stemmed because there was a senior in that area with molded food in their refrigerator. How can we not, how can we not be human enough to provide some food? Even if it wasn't a lot, even if it didn't uh, be a billion people, you have to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere. No matter what um, society or structure has, you have to do what your part is and all of the other pieces will uh, fall into place. And because of some of the structured things, our kids are not um, exposed to a certain quality education that they deserve. And now with COVID, some areas are definitely um, overlooked. All right, thank you. Now this next question is for both guests. Many of our listeners are struggling with uncertainties, mistrust, and a lack of hope. How would you suggest they move forward? We will start with you, Ms. Johnson. You know, that's a loaded question because of where we presently at today. But one thing I truly believe in faith. You have to have faith that a better day will come. But it doesn't mean by just saying it. You got to make a commitment to be part of a change. Even if it's a personal change, a community change, or educational change, you know, being involved with your kids. Mm -hmm. But you have to make a commitment to affect something different outside the normal things that you do in your daily life. Like for an example, uh, I'm not a contractor or anything like that in the construction industry, but I knew that I had to be part of that conversation last night because there's millions of dollars in the solar energy sector for general contractors and particularly black and brown contractors. But somehow the state can't find enough of these contractors to be what they call approved vendors to be able to do these type of installations and around the whole solar sector. And I was like, but they do have 30% set aside, right? Mm -hmm. For minority participation. I said, well, that's inequitable, for an example. You know, it don't make the playing field. field. So what about racial equity? And bring that up to an additional 20%. And why not have 50-50 for a change? If the money is there, it's allocated for us. So, you know, so I'm just saying, I was out of my comfort zone. But I had to say something, you know, I participated because, for one, I had an interest in it. Because you're only going to be involved with things that interest you. And, and that's what I'm trying to say is that find an interest or find something that's not right and get engaged in trying to make it better. That's the only way we can do. Because, you know, one of the things I hate that I hear a lot, in particular in the Black community, we don't come together. That is so not true. You know, because if you come to me and say you hungry, I'm going to feed you. 
we don't look at the social equity that we have in our community that's so high. We only driven by the economic inequities that affect our communities and our personal lives every day. No, I, you know, no, I can't give you a hundred dollars. You know, I can't directly, but I can share whatever I have. And then that's because we have lack of education in the economic opportunity that exists in this country. And, and, and the fact that it's never been a playing field when it, when it came to money, when it came to making money. And that's an environmental issue. That's an environmental racist because you're saying that I cannot have a quality of life like you to raise my kids, to have an adequate job, to have good education, to have good health, good health insurance, good quality uh, food in the community that I live. And why? Okay. Well, thank you. And Dr. Cleveland, um, what would you suggest? Uh, I would say embrace change and make the adjustments um, that is best for your family and your situation and not what everyone else wants you to do. I agree with Ms. Johnson in the fact that faith is very important, but in that faith, you have to believe in what it is that you're doing and being mindful of what you speak out of your mouth. So if everything you say is negative, things are gonna be negative. You have to have some positive conversation, some positive talking. Sometimes it might get a little tight um, in the room for what it is you're believing in, but you definitely want to do that. And um, making wise decisions um, and consider the long-term plans of those. So when you step out there to be that change agent in the community, that change agent at work, the change agent um, in your home, think about the long-term effects and not just for that moment. Um, we can't just think about, oh, how are we going to, to feed the community? That has to be a long-term goal. It may be look different last month. It may look different this month, but we have to think about what it may look like in five or 10 years. So you want to be able to do that and um, utilize the support system. Um, you serving in the community, you need to know every resource that's in your community. If you don't know, um, you know, connect with a Miss Johnson who can help you um, find out what you need um, in the community, but utilizing that um, support system that is there um, to be able to be of help. Thank you. And I totally agree with the point that you made about making a plan and not just feeding someone for one day, because that's just putting a Band-Aid on the problem. So what are they going to do this time next week if you don't have a plan to continue to feed them? Okay, thank you both. We are back from break with my guests, Ms. Cheryl Johnson, an environmental advocate and the executive director for People for Community Recovery, a nonprofit environmental organization located in Argyle Gardens, a Chicago Housing Authority development located in a community on the far south side of Chicago, which came to be known as the Toxic Donut. And Dr. Lolita Cleveland, the founder of the Open Hands Project, which is designed to assist entrepreneurs, 
and ministries bridge their purpose with a local and global humanitarian efforts to address spiritual needs, medical needs, water shortage, education, and homelessness. Racism is a social disease and is the cause of health inequities. According to the COVID racial data tracker, a collaboration between the COVID tracking project and the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, COVID-19 is affecting Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and other people of color the most. The Anti-Racist Research Project represents the most complete and up-to-date race and ethnicity data on COVID-19 in the United States where race is known. My next question is directed to both Ms. Johnson and to Dr. Cleveland. In your role, where do you recognize previously hidden ethnic and racial discriminations in your neighborhoods? And you both kind of spoke on that before, but can you name one area? We'll start with you, Ms. Johnson. Well, you know, I can really start with, you know, living in an area where there's a, where there's a local multi-billion dollars industries in my neighborhood. And, and I know that many of the people in my community don't even, is not important in these industries. You know, uh, look, you know, because one of the things to improve the overall, overall, overall environmental health that I think, you gotta have a good paying job. Okay. And many of these jobs in this, in this area are good paying jobs. Like a lot of people don't know to sweep the floor at the water recreation district, you're almost making 50, 60 bucks an hour. That's a very high livable wage to take care of family. And that's right across the street from us. Okay. So I, I I believe in helping to structure, to get engaged with finding a role to infiltrate, to get our key, to get our community people involved in the economic opportunities that's not only in my neighborhood, but some of the development that's coming around the neighborhood. Okay, to get them back, get them to, back work. to work. Okay, great. And Dr. Cleveland, what do you recognize? You know, it's getting them back to work is key. And it starts um, for me in the youth. Okay. Having that career um, readiness for the youth, knowing what their options are, what some opportunities that they can have. Um, I've always utilized not just a career day, um, but people that are mentors that could come in and really talk to our children about careers. Some kids, we work with how to talk, walk, posture, interview questions. And we're starting that as young as middle school age um, because there's so many other outsourced things that are of influence. So it, we have found that it's good to start at middle age to be able to assist them with them. I've also worked with... Um, few people to try to get kids at work and they're starting to work as young as uh, 13 and 14. And then one while they didn't have um, work, workforce plans and programs for students like that. Um, I know for me, I started working at 15 and uh, it was early work release from high school and then you go to work. So getting the kids in that area of uh, responsibility and providing and 
the life skills that they need to be able to function as um, adults. And I'd like to add to what she's saying is that one of the things, one class, one example that I can give you that actually happened in my community. Carver Military Academy had, uh, before it became a military, they had an LPN program. And many of this, and you get into the LPN program at a sophomore. And by the time you graduate, you, you qualify to take the LPN exam. Well, I know my daughter best friend went through that program and she's an RN and she's been practicing that for over 10 years as a result of going from high school. What I, schools have failed to do is to is is the continuation of uh, they looked at careers of going to college but they never put the tra they took the trades training out of the schools that many of the kids by the time they finish high school they can be a pre-apprentice car carpenter electrician or whatever in that trade and probably used to have a mechanic shop you can learn how to fix cars. So they, and, and the culinary program, the culinary arts they had, but preparation for them to go to chef school. So, and we, so it's, uh, we became to oriented our kids more to college, but our infrastructure is tearing down. And we don't have that, that workforce to be able to pick up because most of the people in that industry, they my age or, or older than they aim to retirement zone but they failed to, uh, to continue to recruit kids into those trades and especially blocked uh, kids that was coming from the black and brown communities. And that's and, so important. And, and the, the Department of U.S. Department of Labor should have been doing something, but because it became political with the unions, and this is how they they blocked out black and brown kids. They did, and in the uh, in the education system with the charter schools and moving them around and making them military schools, which made them have blocks to be able to have those programs. And an example to that also is that one of the feeder high schools to the community that we serve is deemed to be um, not a good school, which is Finger High School. But that feeder school is doing trades. My kids, they're doing cosmetology over there. They're doing culinary over at Finger, but they get no information about it. All they talk about is one violent incident that occurred 12 years ago. But Finger High School has a full culinary uh, poetry. Um, they, have, they have dispersed a book out of the high school that is on Amazon for sale, and they don't talk about that. Um, but they have a, um, a, a cosmetology program and a construction program, and they're looking to do some manufacturing um, programming for the upcoming year, even offering a virtual component to that. Okay. I heard you both mention a block. What do you, what does well, that I'm mean? Well, I'm just saying that uh, when I talk about block, it, it's, it's the disinvestment into okay. those opportunities within the school system. In the food system. Provide those <laughs> trays and all that old stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And and to and and locking them out of the whole union uh opportunities also. Okay, thank you. Okay, you both talked about the um lack of access to um education, to jobs. 
to earn a salary so that individuals can take care of their family. How are those issues contributing to the COVID-19 stressors in the Black and Latinx community as well in the disability community? Well, generally speaking, it's an added stress. You know what I mean? Because it and and distress is must is more riskier because the fact that you're talking to me today and I could be on my fifth day ex being exposed to COVID and be dead two more days from there, you know. And that's how real that this that COVID-19 are happening, and particularly in certain zip code in the city of Chicago, but also you know, uh, black and brown community at uh, West State, we are just, because we don't have the access, the, the access to quality healthcare. And then we have all these, you know, precondition, pre-health conditions that, that contribute to some, our risk being higher for contracting this, this deadly disease. But, you know, on the same, so we, you know, so when you really look at this, uh, you cannot, you cannot really separate any of the, the inequalities in our community uh, that wouldn't give the residual effects of what we experienced with COVID, you know? So it's all interrelated, it's all intersected. And, and particularly for our community, see, we don't have that luxury. We don't have luxury to look at these things as, as one component or different components. We have to look at all these things because guess what? All of those things come to the table with a family. Mm -hmm. Okay. within a community, you know? So I cannot talk about air quality issues if I don't, I, and I don't talk about water quality. Because right. as I said earlier, whatever goes up must come down. Pollution don't go to heaven either. So mm -hmm. where does it go? And that's why it's important to um, address all of those issues holistically, mentally, physically, environmentally, economically. Exactly. Dr. Cleveland, what um, do you think, how do you think that these issues are contributing to the COVID-19 stressors? It's added. <laughs> yeah. yes. our, our communities have already had stressors. Mm -hmm. um, and like you say, in all areas, mental stressors, emotional, environmental stressors. So now there is COVID and it's an added stress because we're a family um, was having difficulties with working. Now COVID, they're laid off. They don't know where their next meal is gonna come from. Um, bills are not being particularly paid, um, which affects their internet. So now the kids who need to have virtual remote learning don't have access. I mean, there are some resources there. However, that becomes a stressor, that's a concern. How is my child going to be able to be remote? If I'm laid off, I'm not working. There's a cut in un unemployment. How is my baby going to be able to get online to learn the things um, that they need to learn? So basic needs are in jeopardy. So if we're already in a food desert and can't access food, and now we're in the middle of COVID where stores are not supplied with the things that they need, let's not even discuss um, those that do not drive in our community there's only one bus in the city of Chicago that comes in and out of the community. Right. Um, so it's just, it's an added stress. And that added stress turns into trauma because it's mental effects. Um, people who have already have mental concerns or an imbalance, it's an additive. Um, children are now stressing 
I had a situation actually where a 14 year old decided they were not doing remote learning in April, May, because guess what? They had to go out and help make money so mom could have food on the table. So it's real. Um, and the layers are there and then diverse learners are um, affected by it's an added stress. So what was their consistency is now getting another type of system in place. And if they don't learn that particular way, it's very overwhelming. So now mom is overwhelmed to try to be able to assist that diverse learner. And then of course you get in the medical part, you can't see a doctor because they have to now see you telemedicine to make about $400 for a telemedicine visit. But that's not what the, call, the podcast is about. So it's just many, you know, levels and we can go on and on and on and things are just limited um due to COVID and it and it definitely increases what was already going on and we were working and fighting to improve and increase and now you know COVID has caused more to be an, an added stress from a different perspective. Okay. And that's good that you just added that Dr. Cleveland because my next question was how are these things connected? So you just mentioned about the young lady that couldn't come to school or do remote learning because she had to go out and help her mom make money to support the family. So it is like a domino effect. So they're all interrelated. Um, do you have anything else to add for that question? How are these things connected? Uh, they're all connected. They're all bridges that connect the dot. They're all affected by some way. So even as Ms. Johnson mentioned about the environment, so if my baby has water that is not good for them and they drink the water, and then if they're younger kids, they're not fully developed in the brain or in other areas. So now we have an issue with health issues and then the health issues then turn into them being a possible diverse learner because they have been affected by that. So now they need some additional resources and then the one hospital that can help them be evaluated is 36 miles away. So it takes mom three hours to get to the university because it's only one bus. So, it, you know, it just becomes a domino effect. The connect the dots is so many pieces and so many layers to it. Okay. So my next question is um, for both you, Ms. Johnson, and you, Dr. Cleveland, what do you think the community members can do to increase their chances of maintaining their physical health and mental health during COVID-19? Um, I would say utilizing the resources that are provided to them to meet their health and mental needs. I mean, I know that we are um, fighting for some areas and some more services to be there, but um, if you have a clinic and you need to go to the doctor, Find out the things you need to do to be able to see the doctor, whether it's telemedicine or not. Don't be at home and be um, sick and not feeling well because you feel that the doctor is just getting paid and making a dollar off for you. And there may be some doctors that do that. That's reality. But you have to fight for your um, health and take advantage of the programs. And here's the big one. Be honest with yourself that we need help. One of the biggest issues mm -hmm. in, that, in that mental health is you need to say that you need some help. You're not okay. You can't, you can't be 100% for your grandbabies, your kids, or anything if you're not taking care of your health, you know, and, and even your mental health. And unfortunately, there's been a, you know, a stigma in the um, Black community 
that, you know, we don't go see no shrink you because that's going to mean you crazy. Right. No, you need somebody to help you process that thought um, mm-hmm. before you make a tough decision or before something turns another way, you know. So being being okay with asking for the help and the assistance that you need, maybe removing some of that pride to, to talk to someone and talk to somebody um, that you trust, not just your girlfriend or your homeboy that's going to agree with you, but somebody that you trust to say, hey, I need a little help right here. I don't know which mm-hmm. way I should go with that. Um, and staying connected to the resources um, in the community. I think that um, the community has a lot of resources. I know in my thoughts, um, it's a rich land. That's another topic. Me and Ms. Johnson could talk about that. It's a yeah. lot of resources. And sometimes I think that um, people don't really know that there's there. And that connector that you're mentioning, if they're coming in as a new resident to the area, are they really being connected to the resources um, that is offered in that community for them? Or is it just another agency that's there to collect numbers um, of residents and not get them what it is that they need? So just staying connected to the resources, finding out the information um, that they need. Okay, Miss well, Johnson. said a mouthful. She was, it was like I was in her soul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, we, we totally independent. But I agree with 100% what she's saying, you know, is because of the stigma that is associated with a lot of the resources is available to help us process things and just to have a discussion about it, you know, because all of this is a mental situation regardless and and it determine and it and it affect how you respond to certain things you know and you know i always having a conversation today that i normally don't do is like every you know i said because we're in this covid 19 situation we got more than we got more than what we had of taking bombs you don't know what the state of mind of folks are today you know and it only take one little incident to get it blown out of proportion, as we see with many of the protests that's going on around this country. Yes. It only takes one incident, one, one instigator, and, the, and it seems like that mass will follow. So yes. I say this, that um, try to get as much information that you can based on the accessibility of, of the tools that you may have. A lot of people do have hell and I call them hell hand computers, a cell phone. Mm-hmm. When you can find out if there's just by Googling, Googling is the bomb. You just ask question and it was gonna put you in the in the reference of what you what the question is. But to seek out information and to, and and um, when you talk about new people moving into our community, then find out what resources is available from the management perspective because they're supposed to disclose those things. That's right. Stop allowing folks to do things to you and then ask questions later. There's never such thing as a dumb question. It becomes dumb when you don't ask. Right. So you have to be advocate. Anything that's burning you, and Mm -hmm. it's okay to say, I may not know how to say this right, but I'm going to get you to understand me. You know, I may not know how to talk this language, but look, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I need. 
where can I get the, uh, where's the help? Where's the, tell me something, you know, tell me something that's going to address what I'm bringing to you. But we feel like we have to be educated to ask question, you know, and, and no, you, it's when you don't ask the question that is burning you on the inside, you know, so I'm going to leave it right there because Dr. Lolita said it all. Okay, thank you. Now, my next question um, is going to be directed to both guests again. Many experts say that the pandemic is a wake-up call, and Chicago's Mayor Lori Lightfoot says this is a call-to-action moment for all of us. Ms. Johnson and Dr. Cleveland, what are your thoughts about these two statements? You know what? God said he's going to shut it down. He shut this globe down because we need to sit down and do some real reflection on how we treat human mankind, right? That's what it's all about at the end of the day. And that's why you see these different spurs of different stuff that is being flared out, you know? Because now we, we're in the year 2020 and that represents vision. So we need to start taking a look at the things that, that are negative impacting our public health. Yeah. Regardless to the end, at the end of the day, it's affected our health, our well-being, and the decisions that are being made. Why are we not going to the voting polls? Why are we not filling out the census, for an example? If we continue that pattern, then we say we don't want those resources to come to our neighborhood at the end of the day. So it's like really what, you know, because a lot of people, we talk about racism a whole lot and, you know, about the way that they, it affect us. But we got to understand how to affect the white community too when they know that from maybe a generational back that they've been lied to about how black people are and the way that we are. So that, and when they go off to school or, or learn how to intertwine with the general population, you know, that we lazy, we dumb, we, ed we educate, sometimes we even get a tail. And when a child find out that that is not the truth, what, what, what mental impact they have on that, that young person? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's about truth and how, and reconciliation among us as human beings, because we're the only one that can affect and make changes, whether it's going, these changes are going to be for the good or we're going to continue down this path to destruction. And this is the vision that we're seeing and it, it gave it to us in 2020. We've seen a lot of stuff. So I, I really want to look at, I don't like to say racial reconciliation, I like to say human reconciliation and the respect that we have to have among each other the respect that we have to be given back to family. Family need to sit down. It's forcing family to sit down and have these conversations. It's forcing family to sit down uh, to have structural activities within the home, not outside no more because all those external things we've been supporting, but we got away from values. It's about teaching values today and, and morality then how much this goosey bag costs or 
how much this Gucci belt cost or buying the Michael Jordan $500 gym shoes. That is so insignificant. And that's what I think that where we are, because guess what? When that economy shut down, I guarantee you, Michael Jordan, did, only the rich folks was buying Michael Jordan shoes because the poor people is the one that supported. Thank you. And Dr. Cleveland, what are your thoughts about those two statements? Uh, they're true. Mm -hmm. The pandemic is a wake-up call. Mm -hmm. um, there has been a shaking in the land. Mm -hmm. um, will the will the world win? No. But there has definitely been a shaking and a wake-up call um, in the land. Things that has been out of order needs to be in order. Um, there's some shaking of who hasn't been truthful that is being exposed. It's been some exposure um, occurring. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is a call to action for those people who need to raise up, that has a voice, that has been fighting, that has been supporting. It is now their season. And uh, my motto is after this, after this, there's definitely um, vision to come forth. I have, I've seen even in the midst of a pandemic, it is shaking people up personally. More people are becoming entrepreneurs. More people are becoming more creative. Um, more people's talents are coming to the forefront. And there's been a shaking um, in the in the in the governmental areas and political areas um, that they thought they were in control, but they're really not in control. Um, so there's again, my favorite word is there's so many layers um, to it. But I do agree that is a wake up call. It's not just a wake up call for Chicago. It's a wake-up call for the world. And it is a call to action for um, people to stand up. If they weren't supporting the community, now is the time. If they were supporting the community, hey, it's a level-up time. So um, it's definitely um, been a shaking. It's definitely been a shaking. And uh, your shaking is going to depend upon where you at, who you serving, and, and which way you're going to go. Thank you. Ms. Johnson, while watching television, your mom, Ms. Hazel Johnson, learned that the South Side of Chicago had the highest cancer rates of any area in the city. She began investigating her Art Gale community and discovered there was an environmental issue and began to work with the people to fight for change. This type of community action is a proven approach to solving problems in our community. How did the community change because of Ms. Johnson's work? And how can we apply these lessons to this call for action moment? Well, um, uh, you have to have the endurance. You have to have the level of commitment. Um, I tell people now that, you know, my mother's education only went to a sophomore in high school. But she said, becoming a mother gave her the width and the knowledge to that say something like this is just not right. Mm -hmm. um, she asked questions as we just previously talked about to find out what is going on in our, our community. And she connected with people who was very supportive and giving her the information that she needed about the South Side of Chicago. So uh, I can say that yes, we was very instrumental, instrumental in many of the interesting areas to make sure they are in compliance with industry that wasn't in, compli uh, in compliance, we shut them down. 
what industry was trying to come to our community that we felt that was polluted. We, uh, we stopped that process. But as we stop one, there's another one or another two growing in uh, behind the scenes. So as we fight with General Iron, you know, that's one to leave Lincoln Park uh, neighborhood and come down to the south side, the south side of Chicago, the far south side of Chicago, to uh, take in automobile scrap and put it along our little waterways and and pollute our air and make our children and our families sick because the rich white community, well, not the fluent community of, of Lincoln Park, don't want it in their neighborhood. They want retail stores. They want th those high-end retail stores and mixed development, housing that we cannot afford. And that's, and, and I think for the city of Chicago to do something like that, that is very discriminatory, you know? It's, you know, we always got to look at environmental racism as we examine it today. And uh, in the past, people weren't listening to it. Uh, elected officials wasn't hearing it. Okay. So today we know that they have effect on our quality of life to be able to breathe clean air, drink safe water, and live, and live on land that is not polluted. When it comes to our community, we say we was able because it, it was planning on to demolish all gale. We organized, we got to keep the communities to, to fight for it, to be here because it's, it's a community. And I tell people that, and I'm proud, and you know, I'm not shaming my game. I never lived anywhere else but in all gale. I'm 59 and I've been out here 58 years. So I know my community. I'm one of the community science in my community, but I'm also one of the biggest guinea, guinea pigs that the science community can ever examine because I never lived anywhere but out here. So how much of a burden, how much of a toxic burden is within my system that I'm dealing with? And I don't mind if it's for the betterment of, uh, of my community and to understand science and medical, I don't mind being that. And I'm not just the only one, there's other people who was born out here that still live out here. This is my community, this is my neighborhood. I don't. I never looked at it as a public housing. I looked at it as like my home. And, and I have a choice to where I live. And, and, and when it comes to the perception, I'm an executive director of an organization. I've been a project man, I've been administrative assistant. So it's not like I don't wanna work. I've been working just like you said since I was 14 years old. Okay, thank you, Ms. Johnson. Ms. Hazel Johnson was definitely a visionary and we need more people like her to speak up and speak out and become advocates for themselves, for their health and their community. Dr. Cleveland, what would you suggest to our listeners looking to make a difference in the communities that we serve during coronavirus pandemic? Get involved. Get involved. Get involved. Be consistent. Be committed. Allow your voice to be heard. Don't easily give up or be discouraged. Follow the action of call that Ms. Johnson had to make a difference and fight even if it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, push through for the change. Network connect, be seen, uh, show up to the meetings, get on the call, 
Ms. Johnson mentioned she had to get on a, uh, involved yesterday. She may not have known about it, but she had to be there because she was committed and focused on um, going forward to see the cause of action she's been in, put in place to be done. That's it. That's all. Get involved. Get connected. Be consistent. Um, you know, and continue to fight for it and leave a legacy. Mrs. Johnson left a legacy. I'm not from Odell. I've had family that live there. I've worked there, and anywhere I go, I put my hundred percent in. Um, so I consider myself an honorary member. I don't know how Miss Johnson, but I do. If she only knew. Um, when you when you think about it and you passionately you get involved about it, um, you realize human is human. I don't care where you are. You have to be uh, respectful of another human being and their life and their rights. So, you know, showing up and just being involved. And she left a legacy um, in that community, in, in our globe, in our nation. And I mean, within my first 12 months of working in the community, I knew her before I ever knew or heard of a Miss Johnson. Her name was a name that I knew and was very clear about um, in the community. So that's a legacy. Okay. That's the legacy. We want to invite you to contact us, comment about this podcast, and ask questions about COVID-19. Visit the GSU podcast website. The link is available in our description. Dr. Roberson, and this is the Southland Health and Wellness Hour. And if you are just joining us, our guests today are Ms. Cheryl Johnson, an environmental advocate and executive director of People for Community Recovery, a nonprofit environmental organization located in Art Gale Gardens, a Chicago Housing Authority development located in a community on the far south side of Chicago and Dr. Lolita Cleveland, the founder of the Open Hands Project, which is designed to assist entrepreneurs and ministries bridge their purpose with local and global humanitarian efforts to address spiritual needs, medical needs, water shortage, education, and homelessness. As the Director of Community Engagement, in the College of Health and Human Services, my role is to meet people where they are and to help address some of the needs in the community members in the Southland Chicago and to connect them with community resources or programs. We developed a short survey and entitled it, We Want to Hear From You, which asked community members what they want to learn more about or need. Here's a question from a survey we took in University Park on July 10th. Our respondent is a 54-year-old African-American male from University Park who asked, why is the government blaming Black people for dying from the coronavirus? Dr. Cleveland, how might you respond to this question? <laughs> Everyone is looking for someone to blame. Um, there are many levels to the pandemic, um, political, um, educationally, um, just a, a whole lot of layers. However, I believe that the government is looking to blame who, who they believe is the weakest link in the matter. Mm -hmm. um, so they want to 
blame the blacks, right? However, locally and nationally, we are fully aware of the communities that are um, plagued by food desert and things of that nature. And yet they have not um, did much to ensure that we all have equal access to these things. So you want to blame um, blacks. Some people want to blame blacks for this. And they're saying that it's because of underlying issues. Well, what do you expect our underlying issues to be when you have us live in a donut? What do you expect our issues to be when we don't have access to the food that you have access to? What do you expect our health is going to be if you're giving our kids a sandwich and cookie as a snack during COVID with um, uh, 100% sugar grams, um, which contributes to obesity, and it becomes a domino effect like we talked about um, earlier. So you're looking to blame. And then I say this, you're, you're, you're still going back to this structure, racism and discrimination. Is it because there is still an issue with the African-American community that dated back long beforehand, all the way back to slavery? There's been an issue and a hate and a setup. I said it, yep, a setup and some other things in place um, to why they may want to blame um, Black people. Unfortunately, um, we are marks in certain situations and circumstances. Sometimes we are a threat in certain situations and circumstances, um, and, it, and it poses an issue. So who else are we to blame? Because other nationality has underlined issues. My neighbor is Hispanic and she has diabetes. She probably wondering where I'm at now because I go get things for her. But they're not saying that that's an issue. They're not saying the other nationalities, they have the same underlying issues. Theirs may not be to the level of the capacity that we may be um, faced with. But then again, is, is it an attack on, on us? And then when you get to talking about um, coronavirus, you know, there's a lot of research and we know in research, there's always guinea pigs and people to put in place to be able to make things happen. Um, clinical trials are good. It may not be for everybody, but it is still research um, for it to be done. So that I would just like to add to that. We have to look at what the essential workers experience. Where some people who can't stay home must go home. And you have to look at the workforce of it. Is 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 the is, are they employed giving them the protection that they need? You know, so are they receiving the hazard pay that is needed to keep them moving on and That's putting right. their life on risk every day? So what you don't hear too much of a conversation about folks who have to go to work. I, our bus drivers, our people that work in the stores, people work at our grocery store, people who clean houses, clean, you know, the cleaning industry, you know, there's so many factors that when you look at it and, and, and then you're forcing them to do 12 hours, but only want to give them eight hours of pay, you know? So it's those things, those things have a tremendous, act because you have to understand, this is a, it, it affects our immune system. And if you stress and you add stress, like this COVID did, to all the other stresses that we've been experiencing in our life, that decreases our immune system to fight off 
a lot of the infections such as this COVID had invaded our bodies. You know, and we just don't have an understanding about it because this is a coronavirus. This is a, a novel coronavirus that they don't have no history on. So, and, and this, this, this virus is tough because you, you, you don't know which organs is it going to damage the most. We only know that it's in a respiratory virus. That's how they enter our body. But we don't know the damage, what organs is going to damage until the damage is already done. All right. Thank you both for all of your great information and stories that you share with us today. And as we wrap up this podcast, Ms. Johnson, do you have any last words or tips you want to leave with the community and our listeners? Well, I just want people to understand and make the connection between the multiple of challenges that we have in our community is, is the bottom line that is environmental racism. Learn about what environmental racism is and the negative impact that it have on our community and how it associates, you know, how to deal with our health. But also don't just look at those things. Let's try to find solutions. Let's try to be more solution orientated to, to better the, you know, to better the quality of life for our community. Just like I said, that we've been out here, we're promoting the solar farm in Algale, so I need all the public support uh, that we can receive to send letters to the Chicago Housing Authority and say, let's create this solar farm because it would create those residuals. And we too did a study based on promoting the solar farm and solar education and energy efficiency in the community. But, uh, and everybody said, the first thing that they want, what you think they said, Dr. Bully? What they want in this community? Yeah. A grocery store. A grocery store. So we need to come together as a community because we have state funding that can be available uh, to use uh, for capital improvement, capital development. We're just not coming together collectively to demand that our elected officials who have the financial resources to help us to begin that process. And that's what I want folks to if you need to help us all and making sure that this solar farm be developed for the community because it, it, it promotes training, because it's not gonna be the first farm that's gonna be built in Chicago. It's gonna be a high tech skill to help us because eventually we're gonna get folks into the IBEW electrical training so they become elect, uh, journeyman electricians. So we, we're trying to create that road path, but we, we need the young folks, we need, we need the young people, we, need, we just need the community as a whole to support some of the things that we do. Okay, thank you. And lastly, Dr. Cleveland, what final tips would you leave people in need and with disabilities in your community? Um, one, um, walk out your comfort zone mm -hmm. and fight for what you know in your heart is the right thing to do. You know what your community needs. So do it for you, do it for your family, do it for your community. Um, the disadvantage and the legacy of making the strive um, to fight for what's right. Um, our ancestors did it before us. They have set the tone for us to keep going, to keep fighting and to keep um, our voice alive in every area of influence, religion, family, education, government, media, arts and business. Just stand up for what it is that you um, know you need to do, help where you need to help. 
Um, Ms. Johnson just put out that there's support that she needs, then guess what I need to do? I need to say, Ms. Johnson, whatever you need, I'm willing to help and support you. So uh, let me email her when we get off the podcast to find out how I need to roll up my sleeves to do. Um, it's not about what community that you are from. It's not about, it's right. about standing together to make a difference in the areas that need to be impacted. Um, and yes, we need to stand on some next of our politician, especially local aldermans. We won't, I'm not going to go there, but mm -hmm. I would tell the listeners, roll up your sleeve. If you're passionate about something in education, work for it. Kids that need diverse learning, work for them. They need other ways to be able to do it. Um, just roll up your sleeve if it's environment. Start volunteering with Ms. Johnson's organization. Start there, but do something. Your call is here. Do it. Get out your comfort zone and do not um, blame anybody else, especially if you have not rolled up your sleeves to do something. Okay. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Dr. Rose. Thank you, Dr. Rose. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to our second episode of the Southland Health and Wellness Hour. I want to thank Ms. Cheryl Johnson and Dr. Lolita Cleveland. We will be back soon to discuss Are We All in This Together? The Importance of Participating in Biomedical Research. Listeners, we want to hear from you. If you have been influenced by COVID-19, please visit the GSU podcast website where you will find a link to drop us a line. The website address is in the podcast description. This podcast is sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences in partnership with the College of Health and Human Services at Governor State University. The show is produced by Tanya Roberson and Deborah James. Coordinating producer, Rhonda Jackson. Senior consulting journalist, Randall Wiseman. Music by Charles Demazare, professionally known as Seasick. Special thanks to Digital Learning and Media Design for sponsoring the following production expertise. Director, John Tullis. Student producer, Zamar Tompkins. Engineer, Heather Penn. Graphics, Amanda Martinez.